Welcome to the Mercenary Podcast. This is Dan Clifton. On this week's episode, we're joined by Peter S. Hall to discuss the ever-changing role of the critic, the future of movies in 2015 and beyond, and the role that science fiction plays in the development of technology and culture. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to episode four of the Mercenary Podcast. I'm joined by Matt Monahan in Philadelphia and Peter Hall. Uh, you're in Austin, Texas, are you right now? I am. Um, welcome and Peter, to the party, Peter. Yes, welcome Thanks. to the podcast. Uh, Peter is the, uh, among other things, is the senior editor of movies.com. Uh, and, and what else do you do? Uh, I'm also a uh, producer, independent producer here in Austin. Um, and I also work with some film festivals to uh, as a, a sort of associate programmer, helping them sort through submissions as well. And I feel like well, Peter and I ne- have never met, although I feel like we have many, <laughs> many uh, uh, similar uh, interests on Twitter. But we also have uh, our paths cross, I think, because of the den. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you saw the den very early on, um, or I, where you have a few friends also who may have. It's a, it's a very strange uh, circle, independent film. But I, yeah. I feel like it was something to do with the den, is sort of how we crossed paths originally. Yeah, I had, I had seen it uh, early on. Uh, I was a big fan of it. Well, I appreciate that. Anyone who sees the den and does not run immediately away, in the, <laughs> anyone who doesn't return your call uh, after seeing the den, at least you know where you stand with them. Because yeah. it is a very. <laughs> uh, I was. I it think was, it's a good, inventive uh, movie, and it's uh, there's actually been a few, uh, just coincidentally, uh, films recently that have used a similar sort of aesthetic, and I think that The Den is the most uh, smart way of doing it. Um, so what do, you, what do you mean by um, aesthetic? I actually, I haven't seen the full movie all the way through. I've only <laughs> seen the bits that, that you've showed me uh, before, like post-production Den. Yeah, Matt. Only, it was, uh, a little tidbit about our relationship is that Matt only watches cuts that are not finished. <laughs> Matt, <laughs> and then Matt I, I is, comment on him like the the full movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Matt is has been the guinea pig so many times that I feel like it's sort of a weird thing too. When you're in post production, you you sort of forget exactly where you are and who's seen what cut. Yeah. So, uh, but you should probably. It's on Netflix. You have you have no excuse not to watch. <sighs> It, it's and it's like seventy minutes. It's barely <laughs> it's barely a feature film. Right, I'll uh, watch it right after this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think you mean how the uh, open yeah, it's, windows it's, was after came out afterwards, uh, and a few other. Yeah, open windows is like it, but uh, I mean, it's all presented as as footage from within a uh, computer desktop. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. And so, open windows was sort of the big big name one, but I've seen a few others. Uh, that um i don't know if they've actually even been released yet but there are there are more like it and i think the den is is the biggest uh player there um yeah it was funny there was a few uh there was like some somebody like really liked it which was surprising there there was like one uh one person's i'm not sure if it was film school rejects or somebody it was it was film school rejects it was rob hunter oh rob yeah. hunter uh yeah he really liked it but there was there's somebody out of the uk it's so funny because there's so many um it's like the rotten tomatoes crew it seems like is like the list uh, of different people who review stuff and there's somebody out of the uk that like had it in their top 10 list like after guardians of the galaxy <laughs> uh, and I, I thought that was like really that was like really funny 
Um, the Dennis Bazaar, I won't get into the, the, the many years it took to make that movie. Uh, it's a whole separate conversation. But, um, yeah, so I think uh, Peter and I got linked up uh, just talking about independent films because uh, you've made a few small ones as well. And obviously you're the uh, the senior editor at Movies.com. We'll get into that. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, obviously on this podcast we talk about uh, what people actually do. I think – Many people don't really know what Matt does or what I do. Mm-hmm. And so what is um, – the holidays notwithstanding, what has sort of been your, your day-to-day landscape uh, over the past few weeks? Yeah. Um, it's So I'm the senior – as you said, senior editor of Movies.com, which is owned by Fandango. Uh, and my – the sort of managing editor is a guy named Eric Davis who lives in New York. And I'm in Austin, and Fandango is situated in L.A., so we're very spread out. Um, and day-to-day, uh, I, I wake up uh, pretty casually around 9 or so. I work from home, and I coordinate with Eric about all of the uh, coverage we have for the day. And we mainly do features and um, unique coverage like tied to whatever the big release of that week is, like if The Hobbit is coming out. Each week, each day, we'll have you know some big guide to the Hobbit or uh, editorial about the Hobbit. But then we also cover you know the Star Wars trailers and things like that. And so it's it's really just a lot of it. The day is spent monitoring what's happening online and uh, deciding what to cover. Um, we're in a somewhat unique position at Movies.com where since we do have a big parent company, we don't have to rely so much on ad revenue. Um, Fandango makes all their money selling tickets, so we don't have to uh, generate as many hit-whoring posts as other websites do. So we can be a bit more discriminate about what we cover, uh, which is a a luxury most don't have. Right, you're sort of a vertical integration of Fandango to the Mm -hmm. point where it just makes sense to have... Um, was, was movies.com like domain parked like 20 years ago and, <laughs> and, and became, it, it probably was like movie phone first and then, and then got morphed into Fandango and the whole tree. It, um, it might have. Um, <laughs> I actually started when I got into blogging, I was writing, um, professional blogging, at least getting paid for what's like called cinematical, which was owned by movie phone. Um, and then movie phone merged with Huffington post and that uh, collapsed. We sort of fled that ship quickly. Uh, and it just worked out conveniently that um, Fandango knew Eric already, had a pre-existing relationship with him, and we're like, hey, we have this website, movies.com, that we're not doing anything with. Do you want? So we just moved like from one ship to the next. That's, uh, yeah, that, that is so valuable to have a, you know, a single word uh, domain. It's, it's, yeah. got a, it's, it's worth you know, a I, lot I once of money. knew who the whole chain of ownership and where it started. I know that whoever owned it a couple of years ago, a little post.com boom, uh, or bust paid a, a fortune for it. Um, and they weren't really doing a whole lot with it until we came in to sort of give it a blog. Um, before it was just kind of like a mini IMDB type site. Yeah. Matt and I, um, once started a film social network back in 2007, uh, with <laughs> a few, with a few people. And I remember, um, it was pretty fledgling, and honestly, we were we were still in school, and it was there was always the conversation of of is this sort of a full time thing, or are we sort of messing around? And I, I just remember there was like conversations about we had like five thousand dollars pulled between us, and we were like, should we just spend it all on a domain, or should we keep oh, finishing? Yeah. You remember those fights were epic. Film, yeah. Filmpage.com. 
Which was probably it, would have been a great domain. Uh, you know, a, a cat <laughs> tip to Cody Brown on that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, I feel like the the it will works well for movies.com, but I, I think the sort of importance of domain names themselves has, has declined a lot recently. Um, I don't think people remember them and go to them as so much destinations anymore. There's so many other ways to get routed to a site that having a sort of top-level domain isn't as important anymore. I agree with that. Um, the, the one caveat, I think, is, is that if you have a, a domain that is a, you know, like a single word or is really short, you have this kind of like instant brand credibility out of the box. Yeah. So there was a guy, he actually, he was the guy who started uh, MillionDollarHomePage.com, hmm. just started a new company called Calm.com, uh, so like C-A-L-M, yeah. and it's like a meditation app, and um, hmm. in an interview he was saying, he's like, you know, it was it probably cost us, you know, around, you know, like $100,000, $200,000 to acquire that, but it was, it's just, it's instant recognition uh, yeah. out of the box, and uh they thought that was that was worth paying for. Uh, I think that's that's how people really do it nowadays. But like just like you're saying, it's not going to make the company, but but it's it does provide credibility. Yeah, so do absolutely. you sort of see yourself as a social media manager a lot? Because I because I've been um, I've been on both sides of this a little bit. Whereas Matt, you don't quite realize this, but uh, when we have you know a film like for example, uh, the Atticus Institute is a film I'm a producer on that's coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, in varying degrees of windowing, which we'll get into later on, um, over the next month, uh, the ninth, it'll be on iTunes and it'll be on various things that are very complicated. Um, but you know, a lot of times the PR company will pitch to people like Peter, uh, to run exclusives, whether it's key art or a trailer or other stuff. And a lot of times, so we're on, you know, for the den and especially genre stuff, because genre has uh, a very specific, unique audience um and by genre it generally means horror thriller supernatural thriller stuff like that and so a lot of times we're pitching to people like peter and it seems like you sort of taken on the role of social media manager in some ways yeah absolutely uh there's a lot of um particularly in an editorial role there's a lot of uh back and forth with studios and pr companies um Particularly for movies.com, there's a, a sort of big um, push to get assets on there. And we pass on a lot of stuff, not sort of out of discerning taste, but it's also kind of just keeping what a reader wants in mind. Like, a reader doesn't care about three random exclusive stills from a movie that already has five trailers out. Like, that's there's no value to that. You can just go watch a trailer and see 800,000 more images from the movie. Um, but... There's, it, it, it's in this day and age with the way content is distributed and shared and processed, uh, you have to be tapped into social media and you have to constantly be watching it and figuring out um, where things are heading and what, what topics people are talking about. Um, even if it's just to, uh, from like the coverage side, to decide what to not cover because 800 other sites have already done it kind of thing. Um, it's it, it, in a weird way, it, it does sort of mimic the movie business where you, you have competition, you see what content other people are creating and you adjust your own output accordingly. 
Yeah, it seems like in the in the genre world there are tons. There's like stalwarts like um like bloody, bloody disgusting mm-hmm. and shock till you drop and there's very specific genre sites and uh, I've made uh, a bunch of genre movies in the past few years so I've been through that experience experience a lot. Whereas obviously, is it different? Do you find it's much different for genre stuff versus um, just different kind of categories? Yeah, uh, it's, I mean, like you mentioned, you have those staples for, for horror built in, um, which, and the, the guys who runs those sites are great. Um, several of them are filmmakers themselves now as well. Uh, so they sort of get the business and it, it's, it's a good, uh, crutch to have to lean on if you're a producer, um, knowing there are these, these, uh, built in venues that you can sort of play up to. Uh, for example, the, um, last movie I produced, Grove Tony Phillips is a family comedy that happens to be about Halloween. So we got a bit of coverage on some of the horror sites that are just slow and they're like, ah, it's Halloween. We'll cover it kind of thing. But after that, it's like, well, who do you go to? Like this, there's the, the actual, um, and it's not something I thought about when making the movie. It was only when it came to releasing the movie, I was like, oh, we need to figure out who to talk to um, about this movie. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, well, one of the things I wanted to ask you, uh, we'll get to content creation in a little bit, but do you see yourself as a critic as well as an editor and a content creator? Mm-hmm. And what 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 role do you think, and Matt, I want to hear your input on uh, critics as it pertains to any industry, whether it's how people can suddenly critique a restaurant on Yelp and in apps and everything else. But Peter, first, what do you think the role of the critic has, how has that changed over the past few years? And um, how do you see that role in the next few years? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I do think of myself as a critic, though I don't write as many uh, standard reviews as I used to, uh, mainly because movies.com has its own dedicated critic who was at the site before I came to it. Um, but for things like film festivals, uh, I'll, I'll do reviews from there for stuff that the, the, the staff critic is not going to be able to see. Um, and then I also will find ways to write about things. If I particularly love like whiplash, I'll, I'll find a way to write some sort of feature about it um, that's that's critical in some capacities. Uh, but I think the, the Yelp comparison is interesting because the availability of critics has just skyrocketed. Anyone can become one um, right away. And, and uh, the whole way I got into this business was creating my own website called Horrors Not Dead back in uh, 2006 – which I just ran on my own um, for a couple years, and eventually uh, some people who who had who worked for AOL spotted me and were like, "Hey, why don't you come write for us?" Kind of thing. So there there are people who do it independently who will then gain their own little followings, their own little bubbles, and and you can see how word of mouth spreads uh, just from one source to the next. And so I think the role of the critic these days is to it's to sort of just sort through all of the crap that's out there. And there's, as far as movies go, there's so many movies that come out um, and that are in production. It's, it's absurd. And, and so I think dedicated movie fans like to find a couple critics that they trust and that they uh, pay attention to on like a weekly basis, just as sort of like the gatekeepers of, um, of what to watch. And I think criticism has changed or the way people read it has changed 
that people don't necessarily look for uh, astute critical analysis on the technical merits of film anymore. Like there, there are outlets out there that do it and there are readers that cherish it. But I think for the most part, it has boiled down to just a sort of binary Rotten Tomatoes score of should I see this movie? Should I not see this movie? Right. Or more so, should I see this movie and pay a premium price for it and see it in the theater? Should I mm-hmm. see it? Should I wait for Netflix and, and all that as well? Yeah, uh, I think I think it's become aggregated in a sense that uh, that people look to a lot of different places and they'll look to professional critics, but they'll also look to whoever they follow on Twitter and they'll look to friends on Facebook and Rotten Tomatoes and this sort of like in their head, this this critical consensus of in the cloud comes out and that's what people pay attention to now. Yeah. Yeah. I think from, from my perspective, I'm like not a movie buff, uh, in any way. So like, I, I don't really follow any critics at all, but every now and then I'll find myself on rotten tomatoes. Um, just sick, like looking at, uh, reviews just to see whether I should, I should see the movie or not. And oftentimes I just kind of, I look at the rating and mm-hmm. that's a pretty good indicator of whether, you know, massive amounts of people are, are liking it or not. And, you know, I, I, I take it with a grain of salt because I've, I've seen movies on there that, you know, get terrible scores, but I love them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, there's two kinds of – I don't really read people, like, just the random people that, that write reviews. Like, I, I just read the critics' reviews. And there's two kinds of reviews that I see. It's, like, people who are, who are actually good writers and are thoughtful, and then there are people who are just, you know, they, they know a few – they have a good vocabulary, and they're just – yeah. spitting words out and you're just like you're you're not even telling me anything about this movie um <laughs> is that are you saying like do you think because of the bloggers um yourself included sort of rising in, over the past decade uh i always like to look at rotten tomatoes and see and guess sort of who is an old guard like critic mm-hmm. and who's yeah. a new guard blogger is it's, there some yeah, sort of it's, it's not like, that you guys get together but like and have, a, have a parties and stuff but is there like a weird friction there <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think it, it does exist. Uh, I mean, you can go to to like a festival like South by Southwest and just see the sort of the new guard of young bloggers like myself sort of glom together. And then you'll see, you know, a lone variety critic off on their own. Like they don't sort of not to throw variety under the bus. I'm just using that as an example of, of the old guard. Um, I guess the, the ones that, that make me laugh the most are the people that I could, I could tell that they're a, uh, a movie critic at like a local town's newspaper. Yeah. And it's just, they've, they're, they've just loved being that, that critic when, when all that, that was out there was print, but now they're, they're starting to realize that they're not really as good as, uh, some of these other critics out there. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm in the, uh, Austin film critics association, and it's interesting to see the mix. Uh, there, there's a pretty good mix of people. Uh, most are internet-based, but there's some print in there and even some broadcast. And just sort of the attitude that the old guard, the the print people who have been around have uh, about the the new generation is like pure contempt. Like they do not give a damn about yeah. what some blogger thinks of a movie. Yeah, speaking of not giving a damn, Roger Ebert's... Um review of human centipede was probably the best <laughs> review i've ever read in my entire life he, yeah. refu- he refused to rate it he just was like this gets it wasn't zero stars it was just i refused <laughs> rob hunter we mentioned him earlier because he pinned the den as the number one horror movie of the year but he did a review and i, I can't even remember what the movie is right now but fsr gives letter grades 
And it was the only movie that they ever gave a question mark grade to. Nice. Because uh, it was nice. something purely random, like Human Centipede mixed with... I, I don't remember what it was. I'll have to look it up. But it was it was funny to read the whole review, which was a very thought-out review, and then get to like the punchline, which was the question mark. Yeah, and I wanted to say, like, in the kind of the tech world, there's this phenomena of seeing these blog posts that take maybe a screenshot of something that may be tech-related, um, and then analyzing the hell out of it. So <laughs> an example of that is in the girl with the dragon tattoo, she's writing SQL queries. So she's mm-hmm. on the command line. She writes, you know, the, I, haven't, I haven't even seen the movie, but I've seen a couple of the screenshots. And what they did was they, they were like, well, if she's writing this query, let's see if the person who uh, kind of like art directed this actually researched how to do this. And let's see if what she was writing would yeah, actually return. Yeah, that's my worst nightmare. That's my worst <laughs> nightmare. But it's like, it, that's like the worst logic police thing ever. The logic police is like the code word for... Will will people go on IMDb later and say, well, the, well this person shouldn't go in this room because this didn't make sense? Yeah, but the polar opposite of that is, <laughs> is Jurassic Park. It's a Unix system. <laughs> I know this. And it's like, no, it's not. It's clearly not. But yeah, it's still one of the greatest moments in cinema history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you can, I don't know, I feel like now, there's, because there's, because of the... You know the signal through the noise and so many movies and 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 the instant backlash or or whatever or praise to the new Star Wars trailer. You, you can have everything as soon as you want it, and I just don't know. This is sort of sacrilege because I still think that, that moments that work so work. I think people would tear Jurassic Park apart in some ways today. I, people, sir, I think I feel like people would 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 make fun of those things. Obviously, you can't make that movie now because. You know, cliches become cliches after twenty or thirty years for a reason, and everything sort of feeds off what was done before. But it's it's tough because you almost, you know, to find a project you know nothing about that 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 you can go in as a pristine experience is very tough now because so much is just overanalyzed to death that it's really hard to find that. Yeah, but yeah. It, it is awesome when uh, you know a director really gets it right, like when they they just nail it when. It's kind of like I don't know. Maybe it's just holding people accountable, like hold, like making people honest, and, and maybe it's to a, a fault. But it, I, I think sometimes when people do nail it, and in, in this case with the girl with the dragon tattoo, they did. It was it was like dead on. Oh, um, with, the, with the code, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it did what it was supposed to do. The, the tech think, gods, tech gods were happy. Yeah, I think part of that boils down to people wanting to um, find something in a movie that they can feel like they're the expert on yep. uh, whether they actually are an expert or not yeah. uh, is, is they, and I remember when I was like a, in high school, um, I'm a big, uh, PC gamer nerd. And like anytime I saw anything in the movie that was like remotely PC gaming related, I like instantly like pointed it out or like would think about it and like, and the movie would like go up one notch for me kind of thing. And I think that particularly, uh, overanalyzing and having those sort of instant reactions, like talking about Jurassic Park getting torn apart in this day and age. Um, I think people have those, uh, such vitriol and such like immediate reactions, uh, on Twitter and on Facebook and whatnot, just because like, that's all they can do is get a sort of a rise out of a movie. Like it's much easier to shit on something than it is to actually cherish it. And, but, but at the same time, I feel like, People do that publicly 
like Jurassic Park may get ripped apart on message boards and on well, not that people use message boards anymore, but on on Facebook. Uh, but I still feel like in aggregate, like people will be like, "Oh, that was a good movie." Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, in terms of wrapping up 2014 and looking ahead to 2015, what do you think was something? What was your what was not maybe not your favorite film, but your favorite film experience, or what what film did you think? Uh, epitomize doing something different or just was sort of, you know, stood out to you? Uh, for this year, I would say um, not even necessarily like the best experience I had. Uh, certainly wasn't the best experience I had. But I think one of the most important movies of the year is going to end up being Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, because even though it's a, it's a superhero movie, like it's in the Marvel canon, it's, it's, you know, it can only fail so much. But even then, uh, it didn't have A-list actors. It didn't have an Earthbound story. It didn't have heroes that people knew about. Um, it had a lot, and it has a lot of weirdness. And James Gunn directed it and wrote it. Um, and he's someone that Hollywood doesn't normally write two hundred million dollar checks to. Uh, so there was a lot of weirdness to that. Although movie. if you saw a Slither, I don't know why you wouldn't want to write a huge <laughs> exactly. check. Slither's exactly. A, Slither's a great. Um, and I, I was talking to another filmmaker recently. Uh, I won't say who he is, but he's attached to a couple big uh, movies. And he was telling me a bit about his pitches for them. And he was saying he directly cited Guardians of the Galaxy. He was like, studios aren't afraid to get weird now. Um, he's the success of that movie, uh, which no one really saw coming, like the scale of how popular it was going to be. Um, it also sort of feeds into the studio system of being like, oh, that worked do more of it kind of thing. But now, yeah, which, which is, which is great. And, and hopefully it, it continues and there's not like one or two, yeah. one or one or two misses will, will scare people off. But I, I get yeah. the sense that people are trying to throw shit at the wall, but they're trying to throw really big shit at the wall. <laughs> like, they, they want blockbusters. So, yeah. you know, they're not going to make that like kind of indie movie for $10 million that, that could make a hundred million. Yeah, those uh, movies are are going extinct. It's the that, it's that the big my heart. stuff. It's the big stuff, and and there are studios that are taking um, some risks, and they're not all paying off. Um, Dan, you sent me that Grantland article that's that talked about Edge of Tomorrow for a while, which is a fantastic movie that no one gave a damn about when it came out. Um, just yeah, and I really like that movie too. It's it's strange because there's two. Um, there's two really good uh, Grantland articles, uh, one by Mark Harris and um, and one by, uh, I think, Wesley Morris. And it's really interesting because the middle has really fallen out of the film market, which we've been talking about for a while. And it's, you know, Edge of Tomorrow, whether it's the title, whether it's the, the IP, again, with Guardians, you can't really, you know, that, although it's part of the Marvel Universe, didn't really have A-list uh, IP in that case. But it just didn't edge of tomorrow. I really liked it. I thought it, I thought it worked really well. It was, it was Tom Cruise and one of the most Tom Cruisiest roles yeah. possible. And it was a lot of fun and it just didn't, it just didn't work. And, 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 uh, and, you know, Emily Blunt was great in it, it just, but it, it didn't connect with people. And, uh, the interesting article by Wesley Morris is sort of like, if that movie didn't work, then, then what, um, which leads into the whole sequelization of everything. But if that mm-hmm. movie didn't work, like what original movie is going to work? Um, yeah, and I think I think 2015 will be 
an interesting bellwether moment, at least for Warner Brothers, because they still have a few of those original Edge of Tomorrow type uh, movies in the works. Um, Jupiter Ascending was supposed to come out last year, and then they got scared and bumped it to this year, or to 2015. Um, and so that's a big original sci-fi movie from uh, the Wachowskis. And then the other one, it's not original, um, but Mad Max Fury Road doesn't look like any movie that Hollywood has ever fucking made before. Like, that movie looks insane. I don't understand. Matt, how... have you seen the trailer for that? Because it looks yeah. like... I mean... It, it look... It looks like you in the desert after like an S and M party. It, it, it looks. Like, I, don't, it looks... I don't understand why the studio said yes to it. Like I, I like I'm well, so glad they did. I, I think it's but because I mean, is, is Mad, Mad Max. I mean, I think there's a whole bunch of people that are that are pretty into that, and it, think, it like, does whole, still kind of look like the original movie that it's based off of. Yeah, I but like just visually, the scale of filmmaking and the weirdness of that movie. Like it looks like an MTV liquid generation cartoon from like the middle of the 90s like it doesn't it shouldn't exist and so i'm curious like if mad max my bet would be that if mad max fails warner brothers is gonna make 10 more harry well, potters if and it's they're gonna if it's anything like doomsday it will utterly <laughs> fail the most offensive movie i've ever seen is probably doomsday uh well so. yeah in, in different ways i thought that that movie uh, there's there's a whole uh it's grantland did a uh a 20 year retrospective on, uh, on Boogie Nights. And I feel like we should not do a nine year retrospective on doomsday. I feel like that would not be, it's, that would not be good. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I know what you mean. It's sort of, it, yeah, there is intellectual property there and I hate talking about movies like that. It's like, it's such a suit thing. Um, but there is something there, but the people who saw that movie originally, you know, and, and were fans of it, uh, since then, it's not a, it's not a huge huge audience. Like that movie still looks ridiculous in its own right. And I, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, looking at the sequel chart, not to keep uh, referencing Grantland, but looking at the sequel chart of all the films that are having sequels until um, 2020, we mentioned previously on the podcast that I think Marvel has 32 films in the pipeline until then or something, but. <laughs> Of all those films, and maybe I didn't think about it like this, but maybe because of Guardian's success, of all those films, I think Mad Max so far at least looks weird and looks different. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just to me, it's and tying back to Edge of Tomorrow, it's like if that, if that sort of original, although you know, it was it was from a comic book, an obscure comic book, but not well, not obscure, but maybe not as well known. But if yeah. that didn't work people are going to have to take bigger and bigger bets. Uh, yeah. Matt, in the, in the tech industry, do you see this a lot where people, it's like, it's like instead of doing something like Instagram, and this is probably a bad apples to oranges example, but are yeah. people sort of going in different directions because they can't duplicate things that already exist? Or like, what is there, is there anything analogous there? I think that in tech, the, the actual, uh, the ingredients that go into making apps and stuff, has gotten so much cheaper and it's getting cheaper like every year like the tools are getting better like even a year ago like it's it's easier to create an app today than it was one year ago um but the the mantra has always been like minimum viable product you make the you do the absolute least amount of work to figure out whether you have a market for what you're going to sell and that really means that the 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 upside of that is like you get validation or you don't get validation very quickly without spending enough money the downside of that is that you end up producing a shitty app. Um, mm-hmm. 
where you might have a great idea, you just need to, needed to give it time and maybe it needs investment. Um, and it, like, maybe not like monetary investment, but it just needs time to really just get kind of get worked out. I think the, I mean, Apple's the, is the company that really tries to, uh, is maybe the best at doing that. They really try to come to market with a completely fully fledged and, and, um, and polished product where if you're making software and maybe you're not a big company, uh, you're, you're coming to market with something that's really, really rough. Um, I think in the, in the future though, you're going to see a lot more apps that, uh, are, are kind of like in the middle where someone is just like, you know what? I, I feel really, really good. I've got a lot of data to back up my assumptions and we have to do something that's really hard. So you'll see apps like, um, like Oscar, which is going after, uh, it's like a health, it's a health insurance company, uh, in New York city. And that that's, you can't, you, there's there's a, the the minimum the minimum what to make that minimally viable is a, like a lot of work so and I think that that is good like people are going to go after much harder problems um, because all the like, it's it's way hard to differentiate yourself uh, as a photo sharing app right now um, so yeah you're going to want to I think there's going to be more trends of people going after harder things and it is going to take a bunch of money to do uh, but the payoff could be like astronomical. I mean, making a better health insurance company is, is like, there's a ton of money in that, but I couldn't do it from my bedroom. You just can't do it. Uh, but you can make a lot of other things like straight from your bedroom. I thought the, I thought a good example of that, of something that was done slightly different. I thought, I thought acorns was a good example of something that is, you know, it's, it's not for a serious investor because you can't really do much, but you, or in terms of specificity of what you're investing in, but it takes things it takes loose change and so it's a very you know tactile tangible thing that we all know uh that we've sort of wasted money on it George losing it and it takes loose loose change and then sort of rounds it up and then invests it so i thought that was a good example of something that i think people would would relate to that that hasn't been done in the tech field yeah um i mean I, when i saw that i was like uh, there was a particular bank that did something like that um, that was just a feature of a bank. I have um, uh, on Bank of America. I have a keep the change thing where yeah. if you you spend seventy cents, it moves thirty cents over to your uh, your savings account. So I think some people that are taking that exact idea and instead of putting it into a savings account, they're buying stock with it. So um, that's interesting. Well, 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 that's what Acorns is, right? So Acorns oh, do, do that. Yeah, okay. so Acorns rounds up basically those those expenses and then flips that into. There's like five levels of risk, not to go into complete detail, but there's like five levels. Oh, okay. yeah. One is heavier on corporate and government bonds, and then one, you know, one basically just tracks the S and P, and then one is completely. Yeah. And that's in. that's that's makes it a completely frictionless environment for for investing, which is really what most people need. Like, you really should not be trying to manage your own portfolio. You should, like, you know, just throw it in ETF and have somebody else manage it for you. And there's some automated things that companies like that can do that can save you a lot of money. Um, or just, so you don't think that some kid, some kid in a dorm room can't do that though? Or, or is that complicated? Because my my knowledge uh, I don't know. What... I, I feel like you can you can create the technology to do it, but the regulatory compliance is like another thing. Right. That's, that's oh yeah, I'm sure. Like in terms of the SEC and, and your your yeah. your corporate tax lawyers and everything will be. Yeah, that's probably where uh, most of their investment money is going. Right. It's like, is this possible without being sued? Um, well, yeah, in terms of risk, to get back to the film thing, I feel like in 2015, um, and we talked about this a little bit, Peter, but, you know, 
you know, the movies that I make are some have been larger, but typically they've been weird long bets that have been in like the half million dollar to like one to three million dollar range, mm-hmm. which is which I like operating in. Uh, you know, I've done like four or five movies a year to varying degrees of success. But what's kind of fun is that sometimes when the budgets are that low, you can kind of not do whatever you want, but you kind of have more creative freedom and you can kind of take more risks. And um, obviously you have to you have to answer. Uh, but you I mean, I've enjoyed, you know, because stuff like The Den came out of that, which was a weird yeah. experiment that um at least a lot of people have found creepy, but <laughs> it's sort of, you know, what I fear is that obviously I've begun to move into, into bigger stuff now, but my fear is that you, you literally, you're only going to have experimental stuff and then you're going to have a hundred to $150 million sequels and really not much in between. I mean, how, how do you see it? Yeah, I, I, I would agree there. Um, I think there's there's the micro, the truly micro level, which is like me making stuff for sub hundred and fifty thousand. Um, then there's the actual indies that are you know half million to three to five million, and then the pool thins a bit if you're doing something between like five and twenty. And most of those these days are studio comedies. Even the interview costs forty million dollars to make, which is ludicrous to me. Um, and so I think that mid range, that like 20 to $50 million movie is just, uh, it's going to become, there's going to be certain businesses that, that sort of double down on those. And then everyone else is just going to move away from them. Um, I wish I had the, the thing up, but universal this year actually didn't have a single movie that cost more than $75 million. Um, and yeah. so they were the most successful studio of the year just because they spent, uh, the least amount um, they would have had, you know, a two hundred million dollar movie if Fast and Furious Seven had to come out in twenty fourteen as planned. Right. Um, but I have a feeling that Universal is going to look at this year and go, "Hey, let's do some, let's do more of that." Um, and it's it also seems like the movies that seem small, like The Interview or Gone Girl, right. um, are are actually pretty. They actually, yeah, they they cost a ridiculous amount of money. Um, what was well, Ga- well, Gone Girl's obviously Fincher, and you know, he a girl with dragon tattoo. I think he shot like 165 days, which is an enormous, <laughs> yeah. which is a, which is a, which is a very enormous schedule. I mean, it the when you mentioned doubling down on films like that, it seems that the films that would double down are stuff like Prisoners or or sort of elevated, and I mean this in the most kindest way, but it's sort of these elevated dramas they're almost like elevated star-studded svu episodes that are really yeah. gone. that's what gone girl is extremely well i i really liked it uh entertaining sort of taut thriller that's very strange very weird but it's but it's cast up you know it's cast up and it's just very well handled but it's sort of an elevated drama it's not a high concept film at all mm-hmm. um and so those are the kind of films that i think will double down in that space is is stuff like that i hope so uh, but I'm, I'm just i'm curious if uh like who's gonna make those the movies like, there are filmmakers that would like to make them but studios uh i i don't think we've adequately adequately addressed like why don't people want to make the the 20 million dollar movie it's i think it's these days uh and dan would know much more about this than i would um but I would guess that it's because of the cost of advertising. If you spend $20 million, 
you're going to spend at least $10 million marketing it. And so then you're at, you know, at $30 million. And to recoup that theatrically, you're going to have to be at 60 to $70 million just to break even. Um, yeah, and so it's, it's the actual, like, the asset, the, even though the budgets of the productions stay low, what you have to spend to make 70 to $100 million these days has gone way up. So it better be, like, it, it, it better look great. It better, you, you, so in that case, it's just like, well, if we're going to spend all this money in the advertising, we better put all everything we've got into uh, the production value. Yeah. Well, it's it's honestly, it's, you can't open a film wide, and I consider wide to be, you know, seventeen hundred to two thousand theaters. The biggest releases are thirty-five and four thousand for, you know, the new Star Wars. But uh, you can't open a film wide unless you spend at least thirty to forty-five in advertising. It's not ten. So, so I guess, like, I I'd like to ask why why don't more movies go straight to on demand? Like, why why can't it be it be profitable to just skip the theater? Well, it can be in different ways, but what's interesting is we talked about Snowpiercer last week about how that was one of the films that, even though even though it was moderately margin call before, and then Snowpiercer mm-hmm. found an audience on on demand, but it still only did like eleven million. Now, the the interview because of all of the hubbubaloo and, yeah. and and just all the craziness, it did a lot more than I thought on demand, and it did like fifteen in the first week or something. I mean, Peter, do you? Yeah. Yeah, it did, it did 15, uh, and the the unique thing there is that it did 15 on Google Play, YouTube, and Xbox Live, which are, like, the smallest players in the VOD space in terms of, like, actual user base. If it, yeah. if it had launched on iTunes, that would have been a genuine test of how good that system works. Yeah, Yeah. no, no for sure it's funny because VOD, they won't know what their true, like, cable VOD models are for, for weeks or, or months because... Yeah. Having gone through that cable VOD, um, you know I I love VOD. Uh, it it is great. I'm not disparaging it completely. But the cable, it's not the distributor's problem. It's the the cable. It is like a house of cards of the cable systems not working. Like for example, it's it's an old pipeline. It's an old system that you're trying to pump. Uh, a digital content through and and when we did the den it was supposed to come out in la and new york on i think march 14th and because of a glitch in in time warner system it just wasn't available for three weeks after <laughs> it was supposed to come out and hmm. and there's just no way of controlling that and and you know people are on and you're clicking through uh you're clicking through vod and you're, you're clicking through titles it takes five years. I'm talking about like in Comcast or in Charter or in whatever. It takes five years to get to letter F. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, like, yeah. I mean, I've wanted to throw the the remote on my TV just just because I couldn't search for something. It's it's abysmal. The U, the UX the UI on these TV screens yeah. is is one of the most frustrating. The only thing worse is my microwave. I can't figure out how to do anything on the thing. Well, that's um, that's why you see a lot of indie movies, particularly horror movies and genre uh, stuff, renaming for VOD. There's a lot of movies that will jump to like uh, to throw a number into their title just so they're at the top or like A to C. <laughs> I bet it works. Range like they'll just. It, well, I mean, I don't know if it works or not. Look, but ATM ATM was huge. ATM. On there you go. I, Dan, I don't, I'm not sure if I told you this, but um. The CEO of our company said every time he's at a hotel when he's traveling, he sees ATM, and he's just like, <laughs> I think about uh, about watching it. 
That's that's great. I'm I'm probably getting none of that money, but it's <laughs> it's uh yeah no it's it's the ATM was great because it was actually uh, David Brooks and I got this uh, this award in the mail from Comcast, and it was this very generic. It, it was sort of like you know um, every nine year old soccer player gets a trophy trophy, and it was <laughs> it was this generic trophy that said most watched independent. Uh, film on VOD 2012 because ATM was like the most uh, watched independent like 21 Jump Street was the most the biggest studio uh, VOD yeah. and so we got the um, we got the VOD title for that year and I always joke because it because it was yeah it had it had a great trailer but also because of that's a hundred yeah no offense that's a hundred percent due to the name <laughs> and, 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 and it I, I really, that if 21 Jump Street was the it starts studio with the two <laughs> yeah. That's. I mean, that's exactly what happens. I, I rest my case. I mean, you could you could probably create a you know a histogram of just a, a tail, uh, and it's just like it's just the letter of the alphabet. All, all the movies, and so like, no one is watching anything that starts with a Z. Yeah, yeah. Well, Bernard worked in this movie called Wife Doubt. It was like this comedy about it was like a bro comedy. Uh, anyway, and they changed the, they changed it to All Wife Doubt like two weeks before it was supposed to come out because no there one would. No one saw that movie anyway. That's a subtle yeah. dig on them. But uh, <laughs> I, I think uh, uh, it would have been worse. Um, but, yeah, I mean, so what, what are the films that you um, that, that you make? Because, honestly, I, I didn't uh, realize that you were a producer uh, in your own right until recently. Mm-hmm. Um, but what are the the films that you've made? You mentioned, like, re- you know, very micro, like 100 grand and that kind of thing. What what has your, your experience been from a production and distribution standpoint uh, with those with those movies? Uh, it's it's been fun. Uh, it's not been profitable uh, yet, um, but it's it's sort of where the things that I've worked on so far, and I've only made uh, Grow Up Tony Phillips was the last movie that I fully produced, like beginning to end, and I was an associate producer on a movie called My Second Teen Romance. Um, and then was working on a documentary um, called There Will Be No Stay, which is in various stages right now. Um, so my my experience uh, in terms of released films is only at two right now. Um, but we're working at a level that's so, like, not even, like you don't even classify as being under the radar. Like, the movie might as well not exist. Um, and And that is freeing... In the sense that uh, we don't have to answer to anyone because we've done self-financing. Um, but the flip side is that, like, if you're not paying attention to those things that you would have to answer to, once the movie's done, for example, Tony Phillips, like, I love the movie, uh, but it's a family comedy for Halloween. Um, and it's it's kind of like, if you're not keeping in mind who's going to be seen in the movie and what the marketing strategy is going to look like, and things like that, uh, once you get to that stage, it's like, well, shit, what do we do now? Um, and so, for example, Tony Phillips got a really bum distribution deal uh, that I tried to get out of um, and couldn't. Uh, and so that was not a particularly positive experience, but I'm going to chalk all that up to to training wheels and learning curves. Um, and then the next ones will be, uh, hopefully... <laughs> Uh, much more calculated in terms of the distribution side, but you, you just this—it's so hard to even just appear 
on people's radars. There's so many independent movies coming out these days. Like, if you just go to Redbox and look and just scroll through all the shit that's on there, you're going to be like, who made these movies? Like, where did these come from? Um, I'm sure Dan's been to AFM. I actually have never been to AFM. Uh, but, like, AFM is just a sea of movies. Um, a- AFM is amazing. AFM is, is uh, there. I guess there's, like, four or five major markets. There's a new French market I didn't know about recently. And by market, I mean... Uh, film markets where people sell properties up front with various we describe films as oil futures or corn futures on one <laughs> episode where people buy at various stages of development and with various stages of people attached to them um it's kind and, of it's kind of funny like it, it seems so um unintuitive to me that you know with <laughs> with so many people like there's so much access uh, there are so many people in the world that are now getting internet access. Like, how is it possible that they, like some of these movies can't find an audience? It's almost just like you know, so, like any movie could could find yeah. some audience. Well, they they do find an audience, uh, just, like well, just not a profitable one, I but guess. just not in a paywall. I mean, because it's so hard to yeah. understand. Because like, today, for example, I got my uh, my mom, and my stepdad, I got them Apple TV for Christmas because. They, I, th- I think they're like the last people who actually got the Netflix DVDs, and I was like, "This has this has to stop." But then, you know, that we we set it up and we're looking at it, and it's it's like <laughs> it's like I don't know, hearing for the first time. It's like, wait, all of this is yeah. all free right now. I don't have to pay for any of this, and I'm like, no, no, it's all it's all free. And you look at all the titles, and to me, where the insanity is is that. Movies, because of windowing and because of where things are, and there's an economic play because you're trying to recoup and you're trying to make the best deal you can um, with, to Netflix. But films like don't have a chance to find their audience before they're available for free. Yeah. And I think that is like the biggest problem to me of... The first problem is is making more interesting content, but I think 2014 actually there's a ton of really interesting small movies from from Blue Ruin to Boyhood to there's a lot of interesting small movies. Has but, has anyone tried to make like a um, like a an independent um, Game of Thrones? Like, <laughs> uh, no, no. I mean, not not the serialized like that. Right. But there are people that. Um, uh, that will attempt like if you if you think you've had the idea, I guarantee you someone out there is in a garage trying to make it happen. Um, for example, and I won't say what film festival, but right now I have nearly thirty two screeners on my desk, and the chance that most of these are going to get released is minuscule. Like these, <laughs> like no one's ever going to see these movies except for like me and twenty other people at a film festival. Um, kind of thing, unless it gets into the film festival, and then that changes the life of a movie substantially. Um, but I think there's just so many people making movies these days that it's, uh, and most of them don't know what they're doing. Like most of them are just home videos. Uh, but those that there are people who who are spending and are somehow getting, you know, fifteen million dollars to make a werewolf movie. That I'm kind of like, really? Like, that's what you, like, first off, that costs $15 million. And second off, like, how are you going to recoup that money if it's not going anywhere? Um, 
Well, that's the beauty of AFM. I mean, AFM is like, it's the most insane. Well, actually, no, I mean, can is the most insane thing, but it's um, the markets where people are, it's usually a lot of foreign money. It's usually like someone's found some Russian billionaire who's put up a hundred million dollars for, for five movies named vanilla gorilla or whatever (laughs) that it's, or it's like, you know, they've made up, there's like one or two real movies and then there's three or four fake films that have been used to like pad out the rest of their fake slate. And, um, usually they star invariably like John Claude Van Damme and, and Steven Seagal. And there's like, there's so many of like those films that, um, are like the like the junk bond filler of other respectable investments. <laughs> like people still make those movies. I've never been involved in 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 such operations, but I don't see how they're economically feasible. They just go to Redbox and don't go anywhere. But it seems like those kind of movies never go away. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's just funny. What's what's the life of a so many people who make small movies are you know the the festival screener. I feel like has this aura around them without getting into too much incriminating detail. What's it like to be the gatekeeper to, uh, um, well, I, I get to get a bit of a scapegoat because I'm not the one making the final call. I'm just sort of pushing, uh, things through and sort of giving thumbs up, thumbs down in the, in a very broad sense to put it that way. Um, but it's, it's the most interesting thing for me is to see like a sort of inside window um, to if a movie doesn't get into a certain festival and then it like doesn't pop up anywhere for like another year and a half, I'm kind of like, what happened to that movie in that year and a half? Uh, like, did someone keep working on it? Um, and then the flip side is that also as a independent producer, like it's sort of, it's both encouraging and discouraging. It's discouraging because I just see the sheer volume of movies out there that I'm just like, how, like, why even get into it? Like, because there's just so many people doing it. And then I actually watch the movies and I'm like, okay, well, I can make a better movie than this. Like, I, like, it's, you can sort of see the broad places that people are just making home movies that, like, they're submitting stuff to, to festivals that, like, should never be seen by anyone outside of the five people that worked on the movie kind of thing. Um, right, right. But the actual, like, the industry, the film industry has so many tiers that it's, like, if you go walk around a Walmart shelf, well, it's, this is a bad example now because now Walmart only stocks what it knows it can make money on. But if you walk around, like, a small retailer's DVD shelves, you're just going to be like, who, like, where did this movie come from? Like, in in those kind of deals, uh, I, I don't even know how to navigate them. I wish I, if I had known how to navigate them better, maybe the last movie would have gotten a better distribution deal. Um, I feel like Redbox is now where that exists because, like Walmart, you know, Walmart like took a bunch of, you know, it took like twenty five thousand Blu-rays for the Den. I, I I'm not sure. Like I feel like they think they could sell them, but um, and honestly, they probably can uh, because it fits into a specific space. But I feel like Redbox is like is the place where you see stuff. And to me, it's really depressing when you see stuff where a lot of times it's like really good character actors that you like sort of grew up mm. like wanting to work with, or you really respect. And they're in, they're like together in a film with like one major star from the nineties. And you're just like, how the hell did this movie get made? And what, and it looks like the most generic piece of crap. And I feel like Redbox is, is that destination is yeah. like, it's like, where, I- where did this come from? I think a lot of those movies get made um, 
because of international sales. Uh, like you talking about Jean-Claude Van Damme being in the same 20 movies that, you know, the Cannes film market every year, uh, is that there's like, there seems to be a list of like 12 people, like Bruce Willis is king of them, and John Cusack and Tom Jane, and like, and they're all good actors. But for whatever reason, they have a big cash in, you know, Czechoslovakia. Um, and there's, you know, five different countries that are willing to have distributor, distributors that know that they can make, you know, they can make $1.2 million off of a movie that has Bruce Willis in it, no matter what it's about kind of thing. And so they're willing to pay uh, for it right away. And I think that leads to this glut of a bunch of different people making the same kind of movie over and over and over again. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the same thing with just genre movies in general. There's such a glut of genre films out now. Um, I think that the whole system is about two or three years, if not sooner. And not that the piracy thing recently has a lot to do with it, but I think the vulnerability, like, it's like a shock test for a financial system. I think the shock test for the film industry uh, from a foreign sales perspective to a windowing perspective, I think it's pretty stressed right now. And I think that, and this is sort of, I think everything might collapse to the point where, like, those films just can't exist because mm-hmm. they, they just, they, there's just absolutely no market for them. Once, once Netflix or whatever the Brazilian equivalent of Netflix or whatever, once those destroy windows that those films would have been released it might just clear all that out and then you might just need to make better interesting small movies but yeah. i don't i don't know what do you what do you what do you see as the future of that uh i i would agree there i think there's i don't know what's going to cause the breaking point but i think there's going to be a breaking point where um a lot of these movies that seem to get produced just because they check off so many boxes, so many of the right boxes in the right amount of countries, um, those are just going to go away. Like they're just going to sort of poof evaporate. Um, and what will, but what's be curious to see what takes their place. Um, I think you're going to see indie filmmakers who are doing it, um, for the passion, uh, which in a way is me. Like I'm certainly not doing it for the money at this point. Um, is just because I want to make movies, and so there are, there are people that will keep doing that, and that's how you get movies like Blue Ruin, which is a fucking hell of a movie. Um, but I'm looking, that up. Once, looking that up right now. That yeah, man, you, space, should, you should check that out. It, it's it's a uh, it's it's a cool revenge movie that is uh, takes a lot of unexpected turns. I'll just say that. Yeah, and that was a that was a true uh, indie uh, production. Um, Jeremy Saulnier is the the director, writer, director of that, and uh, I did an interview with him, uh, I guess, two years ago now uh, for when it played a Fantastic Fest here in Austin, and was talking to him about it. And it was the kind of thing that there, him and his friends, uh, they just scrapped scraped together as much money as they could. Uh, he was the cinematographer as well. And they shot the movie as they could, when they could, um, and had their sort of eye on the ball the entire time. And the movie didn't even get into Sundance. And so then they were like, oh, well, we're screwed. Like, that sort of, that was their their big bet. But then it got into Cannes, and then after that, it just kind of blew up. Um, but I think you're, you're going to see more people like that. And I think there are, there are production houses that are going to start to... Uh, attract themselves to filmmakers like Jeremy 
and um, like Damien Chazelle who made Whiplash. I think you're gonna. See, I think we also might see a sort of re-rise of auteurs in a way and of directors uh, that uh, sort of get to build their own brands now that um, people like Jason Blum they they sort of have a blank check to get as many movies made as they want. But the ones that, that hit, the ones that actually connect, are the ones that have like a real vision behind them. And so I think people with actual visions are going to become a much more of a commodity again now. Even, even on the big scale, like, like David Fincher. Um, I mean, Gone Girl was not a cheap movie, but studios are only going to greenlight those kind of movies for people like David Fincher. Um, I think you're not going to see people like the guy that, that got Tron Legacy. Like, he's not going to... Like, you're not going to see studios uh, betting on, like, random effects supervisors getting to direct a $250 million sequel. Um, I yeah, think which is ultimately... More which, is, which is ultimately better. I mean, I think concept, story, um, it's sort of like the, the brand image of, of the director. And also, you know, it's... I, I think small movies are a great producer's medium because, you know, mm-hmm. you you can really, like, you, you know, there's... A, I've made... Um, you know, along with Peter Safran, I've made uh, you know a few movies with Chris Sparling now, who did who did Buried and then wrote ATM and mm-hmm. and uh, Atticus is his uh, directorial debut. But when you're sort of working in a small space where you, where you don't have huge budgets, um, you know, Chris uh, wrote a movie called Sea of Trees that Gus Van Sant is is directing with Matthew McConaughey. So obviously he's he's working in a bigger space as well. But like you know, being able to do small movies with sort of uh, you know people you've worked with before is still it's just still a lot of fun, and it's still a great way of actually being able to to make you know take some sort of strange bets and not have to conform. So um, yeah, I mean, I hope it goes. I hope that nothing collapses completely, but I do think that you know it it just might be that way. But it might open up you know instead of having. Like the Nicolas Cage, John Cusack, like revenge movie that like is going to sell three million dollars foreign. Like that brand just might get wiped out, and it might turn into, you know, producers and directors who have a brand domestically and foreign, just being able to to do more of what they want. It, it, you know, it could be really an interesting next five years. Yeah, I, and I agree, and I think part of that is uh, the cost of marketing is so skyrocketing these days because you have to hit you know 50 different screens to get someone's attention um is that you you can sort of shortcut a lot of that if you have something that is a simple vision that people can look at and glance out of their corner eye and and be like oh i get that kind of thing like if you can and filmmakers with real uh real grit are the ones who are gonna who are gonna do that which is why i think you're gonna see studios backing someone like George Miller, who made Mad Max Fury Road. I mean, he made the other Mad Max movies, but uh, his vision for that movie is so singularly his. Like, no one else could have made that movie. And I think you're going to see more and more of that. I think you're going to see more movies that you're like, no one else could have made the movie beyond the person that actually did it. Um, And so I I think that's going to be really exciting. Um, I think we're going to see a sort of mini rise of, of the auteur system again. Um, I hope that's the case at least. Matt, did you think that anyone else could have made Snowpiercer? <laughs> I don't think anyone really did make Snowpiercer. I think it just kind of <laughs> materialized uh, 
but, but you but you really like transcendence I, I we have to talk about that we have to talk about weird sci-fi i did. I, feel, I feel like you might be the only person who liked transcendence yeah, like, I, I have here, to say. here's why because i really i really do think that um people that write science fiction have way more of an impact on what actually gets made uh, and i mean like the actual technology um and where our, we're going as a species uh and i don't see movies like that and I, I, I know there are books being written, but I, I think there should be movies. And so when I see a movie like, um, like Her get a ton of uh, action and, and people really are, are into it, it like breaks my heart because I think a movie like Her is so far off the mark in terms of being imaginative about uh, what the future could be like. Whereas a movie like Transcendence is like so on the mark uh, about what may, what may actually happen. That it really kind of um, it's a, it's a major disappointment because there are people out there that are you know putting their their hands to work to make technology, and I don't want it to end up in this world where you have a little computer that you're talking to, and you think that that's like the the way we should go, um, or if people just expect that's that's the way the uh, the uh, the world's going to go. So like when I I saw Transcendence, so I hated I hated her. Uh, can't wait for <laughs> that to be taken out of context. Like, this um, is so far in the opposite for you on this. Yeah, right? Okay. So the reason I really love Transcendence is because when we get to a point where you can kind of like upload your, your consciousness, there's no real reason to believe that you will be you uh, in a computer. Um, because there, in, in real life, you, you have like terribly imperfect memory you you can barely i bet you know the three of us we can hardly remember what we just talked about we've been on the on the phone here for about an hour um i, I would have terribly selective memory exactly of, <laughs> i would know exactly what i thought i wanted to have said yes uh, exactly I, that's something i was just kind of thinking about as, I, as i'm speaking but in that in that movie and and i think what's going to happen in, in real life is that you're going to have perfect memory of everything and that alone is terrifying because, like, when something terrible happens to you, you're going to have absolutely perfect memory and be able to relive that uh, immediately at any time, and, like, at, or basically at all times. So that changes everything that it means to be a consciousness and to be a, a human being. It's not even being a human being anymore. It's something else, and it's not being uh, artificial intelligence. And you have perfect memory. You have infinite access to all information that's plugged into you, which means that, like, you're not even... Yeah, you're just not a, a person anymore. You're no longer an ego. You're just this kind of like drop in a in a sea of of consciousness that uh, ch- it really just changes everything. Whereas with her, <laughs> you're talking to uh, you know you're talking to Scarlett Johansson, who as Siri playing Siri. <laughs> yeah, and she and like she's a computer. She's not a hormonal being. Like she doesn't have she doesn't produce. Hormones, so you're not going to get into a relationship with your computer unless it was specifically programmed to have these like hormonal reactions to the things you're saying. Which but begs the question: that, Why? I don't know. There are people today that have relationships with pillows with like anime girls printed on them. So I don't think the hormones is look. That's different. <laughs> different. <Okay. laughs> don't you don't you say anything about my pillow, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's an interesting defense of transcendence is that you, if I have this right, you you're sort of you view it as a wake up call. Um, not that the future will be destroyed by Skynet, which will nuke us to death, but the future is that actually people will lose their their soul. 
if they have perfect uh, cognizance of the reality right. and what makes us human. It changes. Uh, <laughs> it fundamentally changes what it means to be a human being. And, and it seems like you yeah. want that to happen. I'm, I'm like, it, it's to, for me. It's like I, I see it as an inevitable thing that's going to happen. So you might as well just be on for the ride and like just accept that it's it's coming. Uh, but I'm terrified of that happening. Like, did you ever play a '90s point-and-click adventure game made by LucasArts called The Dig? No, no. It was executive produced by Steven Spielberg. Um, wow. <laughs> which so quick quick history lesson on this was it, it was a movie that it, it, he wanted to make this movie called The Dig about an asteroid that's about to impact Earth. This was before Armageddon, um, and some astronauts go up there to go blow it up, and they go inside, and then they find a gateway in it to a different world. Um, so it's like Armageddon meets uh, Stargate. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, and so the game uh, came about because they couldn't get the movie made, and LucasArts had the rights to it, and so they went and um, they went and made a game out of it. Uh, and this stuff wasn't really in the game, but there's actually a really good uh, novelization of the game written by a sci-fi author named Alan Dean Forster who gets into what you're talking about. Um, and what what ends up happening is that the astronauts go to this planet. And this is like a dream project for me. Like if you gave me like a blank check, I would make this movie kind of thing. Um, but they go to this other – this planet and it's completely desolate. Um, there, I mean there's, there's the remnants of civilization, but there's no beings in it anymore. And eventually what they discover is that the society there had perfected um, this technology that allowed them to shed their corporeal bodies and just become like pure consciousness floating in space – and after the last uh, alien walked through it and, uh, you know, took this next step of evolution after, you know, several eons as consciousness without shape, they got bored and wanted to return to their corporeal forms, but had no way with interacting yes. with the world to make it happen. Yep. Uh, and so what <laughs> they did was they they lured uh, humans to the planet as a means of trying to like get them like they're almost kind of like ghosts where they kind of manipulate the world a little bit and they try to get them to like reactivate the machine so that they can devolve themselves and back to a corporeal shape again. Matt is so on board with this idea. Yeah. I feel like Matt's thinking you're thinking right now. I finally understand what Southland Tales is about. <laughs> It's a good book. You should check it out. It's called The Dig. I will abs. It's is okay. It's a. So you said it was a book that was made into um, like a '90s game. No, vice versa. Well, yeah, I don't know. I don't know which came out first, but there's someone. I think I'm not sure um, if they were talking about this specifically because this does also sound a lot like Scientology. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yeah, we're all inhabited by thetans. But someone did tell me about that, where it was just like. You evolve to if a species. This is apparently like that. You know, this could be just the cycle of of what life is like in the universe, where species evolves to a point where it all merges back into this kind of like central consciousness. It gets bored and then says, "Let there be light," and creates something new. <laughs> and the whole purpose of being human or, or being anything on a planet is the fact that you're just you're so separated that you forgot what you were, and that you have this kind of like this um attraction towards going back and remembering and then once you do you you have you want to i mean it's kind of the monolith in 2001 you know it's sort of like that movie like the monolith is that knowledge is it's that it's that idea of 
of higher knowledge or higher being and and you know the apes uh are, are driven by that and are, are changed by that forever and then of course the film ends kind of ambiguously uh, uh of course we all know from room 237 that it was about the moon landing and <laughs> and the indian burial grounds but you know the film ends with um the one astronaut's vision of himself in in the room and it sort of all goes back to you know that knowledge in the monolith and 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 where that goes so that's i mean i i love sci-fi um, I did not like Transcendence, but I do. I do. I do respect <laughs> so, Matt's, yeah. Matt's, uh I like. I like Transcendence because it gives me a jumping-off point to talk to people about that thing that I feel passionately about. But as a movie, I would never watch it again. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think it's. A, I didn't think it was a good movie. Um, what What it's like? I do. I think conceptually, there's there's a few things that strike me. Like, um, I think when people got it right, like Minority Report, to me is is a is one of my favorite sci-fi films because that, I think that's up you know, up near the top for me. Yeah, I mean, not only did it inspire that amazing uh, Dr. Dre, um, uh, Justin Timberlake music <laughs> video with the screens, but it, it kind of, <laughs> but it kind, they got a thousand futurists together, uh, and they all worked on what because it was made in two thousand one or two thousand two, and they got a thousand futurists together to talk about what would be in the near future in the next fifteen twenty years. And they kind of invented the iPad, and they kind of invented they, all this they, stuff. They actually worked on this stuff. Like they created the that board, um, or they created the, the the beginnings of that technology to be using your hands to be manipulating things. And um, that pretty much exists. And the and I think I'm I'm writing this article that I'm going to put out in the next week that is just saying that the hand the hands you know just hands floating in the air manipulating a screen is not going to be the next thing. It's it's mm-hmm. it's your mind. Your it's really are... it's straight to your mind. Like you're going to be wearing either a headset or you know something you put in your ear and it's going to be communicating directly to your brain and um you're not going to see anything. You're just going to be like kind of feeling it. Um and that's going to present a lot of challenges because on the one hand, like your mind is 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 not just one singular thing that makes decisions. Like you have your like your frontal lobe which which handles all the executive uh, actions, the, the thing that kind of like makes you, you. Um, and then you have everything else. And a lot of your desires and your fears and your hate and your loves come from this other place. And you don't really have a lot of control over it. So do you really want to hook something up that goes directly into that? Because then, like, you don't know what the hell is going to come out of there. Because you, yeah. you'll have no control over what's coming out. And you might have to, we have to build... Out pieces of software that like that limit that or you know just mitigate the problems that can come from that it's sort of like when two people have two apple tv remotes at the same time <laughs> and, and, and you're trying to airdrop something but then someone else can override it and then it gets confused and then the apple tv remote starts playing a slideshow of photos on your macbook by accident that happens all the time. That's, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> the analogy I was going to bring up is just like the Ouija board. Like no one thinks they're moving it, but someone's always moving it. Yeah. Or that's, are they? that's a much more concise, better, <laughs> better analogy. Um, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty terrifying. Um, but, uh, but anyway, I think, uh, we should maybe wrap up there, but I, it's, it's been fun. It's been, it's been entertaining. That's... It's, it's been depressing. Uh, <laughs> 
Um, no, but thanks, thanks, Peter. Thanks for joining us, and um, thanks for having me. We'll have have yeah. you back soon if if you have us if you if you'll return. But that was that was oh, fun. Yeah, anytime. Let me know. episode four of the mercenary podcast uh, my name is matt monahan if you hated if you loved if you felt really mediocre about anything you just heard uh, please reach out to us at uh, mercenary cast on twitter and my handle is at matt monahan that's m-a-t-t-m-o-n-i-h-a-n uh thanks for listening <laughs>